Do Jews have special insight into the womb? And what is it about the last day of Hanukkah that teaches us a very special lesson? I'm Rabbi Yossi Madvig, and you're listening to Jews Did It First. Welcome back to Jews Did It First. This is the last day of Hanukkah, so wish you a very happy Hanukkah and a happy holidays. All those other holidays, I'm, I've been told that between Thanksgiving and the first of the year, there's something like a dozen different holidays that are around this time. I don't know, but the main ones are Hanukkah and Christmas, so what are you going to do? Um, but this is a Jewish show, so I wish everyone a happy Hanukkah, and we'll get into more about Hanukkah at the end of the show. But suffice it to say for now, it's interesting that Hanukkah is, in a certain sense, a very transcendent holiday. It really encapsulates a lot of a lot of what the First Amendment of the Constitution tries to encapsulate as far as freedom to worship and be free and to believe and worship and, and express your religion as you see fit. So we'll get into that. But uh, for today, in the Jews Did It First segment... I'm going to talk about fetal development, and this is quite an interesting topic. There's a little bit more to say about this than I'm going to get into, probably. Uh, and I'm obviously going to, you could probably parse out what I'm going to say in a certain way to make it um, not as accurate. But I think that overall, given the amazing accuracy of what's been said in Jewish tradition about fetal development, especially for its time, it's quite remarkable. Uh, it is probably the most amazing feature of God's creation is the ability to create another human being in the womb. And this is, I mean, the truth is it's, it's a miracle for any species, not just humans, obviously, that do this. All, all animals create uh, their progeny, whether it's in an egg outside of their body, whether it's in a womb, doesn't really matter. Uh, it's it's miraculous all the way through. And it's called the miracle of life for a reason. So, um, And quite interestingly, from incubators and 3D imaging and all the modern technology that we have, we're actually able to watch in real time the development of a child in the womb. And what's more fascinating is the fact that people with no access to these tools could actually describe the process with amazing accuracy, as we're going to see. A lot of the medical information that I'm going to use is coming from uh, either WebMD or there's another site that I was using. Uh, let's see, what's it called here? Uh, Parents.com was, was an interesting one that had a lot about babies developing and Healthline.com. So these are some of the resources I was using for fetal development. And as far as the Jewish sources, it's mostly going to be taken from Tractate Nida, uh, a little bit from Sota and, and I think other things like that. So, and that's both Nida is, I'm talking about both the Mishnah and the Talmud. So let's get into it, shall we? So we're going to take a walk through the process according to rabbinic literature and see how it lines up with what we know scientifically today. And there's a series of Mishnayis, like I said, specifically in Tractate Nida, and this is chapter 3 of Tractate Nida in the Mishnah, and it talks about the process of pregnancy. Now, what they're talking about is 
if there's a miscarriage, at what stage of the miscarriage is the woman considered pure or impure at that time in order for her to participate in various rituals. But the information that's contained there is quite astounding. So the Mishnah starts off saying that a woman who aborted a shapeless object, literally, I think the word used, uh, it's a means like a piece or a cut, it's just a shapeless object. If there's blood in it, she's unclean. If not, she's clean. Okay, that's the first Mishnah there. And that really is describing the very beginning of pregnancy. An embryo, at, or I, I think it's a zygote at that stage, is really, it's like a, like a pinhead size. And there's really no form. There's no mass so much. You know, it's, it's just this blob, you know, a clump of cells, as people like to say. And so the baby at that stage, within the first week of gestation, is this shapeless nothing, right? So that's starts off, the Mishnah tells you, this is, this is the beginning stage. So then as the Mishnah progresses, we get further along in the gestational period. So the second Mishnah is going to take us through a few stages, which I think culminate in the end of the first trimester. Now, if you were to just read the Mishnah, it doesn't seem like it's actually progressing in a particular stage of pregnancy. It just seems like it's just telling you all these random facts. If it's this, then that. If she's this, it's unclean. If it's this, it's not clean. Whatever it is clean, it's not clean. It's not a, um, it doesn't tell you outright. But as I'm, as I was reading the Mishnah, it seems to basically follow a progression, especially if you translate it or not translate it, but, um, What's the word I'm looking for? I don't want to say translate, but uh, interpret. There you go. If you interpret it the way that I am interpreting it. So the second Mishnah goes on to tell you that if a woman miscarried an object that was like red mosquitoes, if she miscarried an object in the shape of fish, locusts, or any forbidden things or creeping things, if there was blood with them, she's unclean. If not, she's clean. Then it continues. I'm going to get back to them. I'm going to parse this out in a minute, but I just want to finish it up here. If she miscarried an object in the shape of a beast, a wild animal, or a bird, whether clean or unclean, the bird, meaning these things, whether it's a kosher animal or a non-kosher animal, if it was a male, she sits in uncleanliness as she would for a male. If it was a female, she sits in uncleanliness as she would for a female. But if the sex is unknown, she sits in uncleanliness for both male and female the words of Rabbi Meir. So, like I said, th- this Mishnah seems to be taking us through a few stages here, which end in the first trimester. And it's no surprise then that as it tracks, as you follow this Mishnah, the sizes of the fetus that it mentions get progressively larger. I mean, that's not a big shock. Anyone with eyes can see that a baby grows in the womb. It gets bigger, right? However, what's in, what's really intriguing is the accuracy at which they do it. So to begin with, it first mentions, like I said, if it she miscarried and it was like a it was like red mosquitoes. Okay, so mosquitoes, what what's the size of mosquitoes? So the average size of a mosquito is about point zero one five to point zero four inches long. It's about the size of a poppy seed. Well, wouldn't you know that if you go to about the second week of gestation. That's pretty much the exact size of a of an embryo, of a zygote. So that's quite interesting. Now, the Mishnah 
will compa- then compares the embryo to fish and locusts. So locusts have a range of sizes, but even an adult locust, a pretty large one, is still smaller than most fish, right? So fish, unless you're talking a very specific small kind of fish, uh, it, it's kind of weird to put those two together. So you might say, ah, so Rabbi, your uh, your comparison here doesn't seem to be working. Well, I think that really it's trying to convey two different messages. So first is the size issue, right? The size of the locust, by the, so, sorry. Okay, so the size of a locust is about half an inch. And also, if you go to the seventh week of development of the embryo, the embryo seems to develop little paddles like fins, and it kind of looks like a tadpole, or might one say a fish-like object. So it seems like, and, and in this seventh week of development, you've now got a you've now got a fetus which is about half an inch and resembles a fish. So it seems like the locust descriptor here is talking about the size, and the fish moniker seems to be telling you more about the shape or the look of the embryo. And in fact, the Mishnah did say that if it comes in the shape of fish, locusts or other forbidden things, she's clean. So it could be that the the shape of the fish is really giving you the shape aspect. And then we continue in size with locusts or other creepy crawly things like we were talking about size with the red mosquitoes. So that was pretty cool. And finally, the Mishnah jumps ahead a few more weeks and gives some pretty radically different descriptions. Now, it talks about being a beast or a behema in Hebrew. So that's usually something like a sheep or a cow. And a chaya or a wild animal, that's usually something like a deer or a horse or something like that. So clearly now we are not talking about, we're not talking about a size of the fetus, right? Obviously the size, we're not, no one's suggesting that if the size of a fetus is like a horse or a cow, this is silly. So we're definitely not using that. However, it does mention birds. Now birds can be about three inches in length. If you have a small bird, it's about three inches in length. Now the fetus is about at around 13 to 14 weeks, approximately three inches in length as the woman enters into her second trimester. And not only that, but so what do we do with these these beasts and wild animal monikers? Well, at that time, you also start developing, the, the fetus starts developing distinct limbs that resemble that of like an animal. Like you have little uh, paddles, like arms, legs, and so on. So the general term used for an animal in the Torah is actually something that walks on four limbs, right? So it's sort of like, you know, when, you, when you're talking about an animal, if you look in, where is it? Leviticus 11, chap, uh, chapter 11, verse 27, the way to describe an animal there is used as something that walks on all four limbs. So some, so having limbs is something that is intrinsic to being an animal. So when it's talking about a beast or an animal here with regards to the fetus, it's talking about this concept of shape, of it having these limbs. The size seems to be going with the concept of the bird, and the beast and animal is talking about whether and you know what it looks like. And then finally, the mission describes the ability to tell the sex of the child, 
right? It says, you know, if it's a male, if it's a female, whatever. Now, this stage happens around 14 to 18 weeks into the pregnancy, okay? So that's sort of going, again, like into, that's sort of like right at the beginning when you'd be able to do it. So this is going, like I said, progressing from the very beginning of the conception to about the first tri, you know, the end of the first trimester going into the second trimester. This Mishnah, uh, the second Mishnah in chapter three of Masechta Nida seems to be telling you the progression of the fetus. Now, the last Mishnah is a little bit problematic at first, and I think I have a way to solve the issue. So here's the issue. So the last Mishnah states that the fashioning of the male and the fashioning of the female both take 41 days. So this is telling us after 41 days, we can see the we can see the sex of the of the child, right? That's a, that's sort of how long you'd be able to tell, and that is at the end of Mishnah seven. Okay, that's still again. This is Nida chapter three, the end of Mishnah seven, and that is quite strange because I'll tell you why. Regular science, we would what we would determine now is popular opinion, right? The, okay, so either you can say two, one of two things. And both don't work, right? You could either say, look, we know at conception what the sex of the child is. You can do the chromosomes, tell you what the sex of the child's going to be. And so therefore, what are you talking about 41 days? You know immediately from conception. Or you could say, that's a little bit too uh, microscopic for Talmudic time. So what do you what do you expect from them? And you can determine the sex at around the 12th or the 14th week. Um, that's minimum. Uh, so, And that's... Uh, really can't be confirmed until maybe the 18th to the 20th week. But even if you go to the 12th or the 14th week, that's still 70 to 84 days, right? So you're talking about 75, 80 days here. That's pretty much double. That's double the amount of time that we're talking about where the Mishnah says that fashioning a male and a female is 41 days. So what's going on over here? However, that is when you can determine when we can actually see it at the 12th week, the 14th week, something like that. But when it actually becomes expressed, when it's actually there, we may not be able to see it yet, but when do the genitalia, the external genitalia actually become expressed? That happens by the sixth week of gestation, which is six times seven, 42 days. So it's telling you 41 days. It's actually right in line with medical science, even though we may view it as, you know, what do you mean? I, we couldn't tell the sex of the child until, you know, the 14th or the 16th week or the 18th week of uh, of the pregnancy. That might be true, but that doesn't mean the genitalia weren't there. You just couldn't see them yet. So certainly that is something quite astounding. And we can definitely say Jews did it first. Okay, moving right along. That was the Mishnah. The Mishnah was codified around 200 CE. Okay, now we're talking about the Talmud. Now, in the Talmud, the sages quote a Baraisa, which is like extra Mishnaic material. And it says, from where is the child form? From its head. Abba Shaul says, he's another rabbi, he says, no, it's from its navel. And then it sends its roots forth. So one opinion says it forms from the head and goes down, and the other says it forms from the navel and then sends out. So this is a very intriguing statement, since we know that the navel or the gut doesn't really form until about 
the third week after implantation. And the head doesn't really form until even later than that. And in addition, everything really seems to all be happening at once. Like all the different parts of the fetus, it's not like form one part and then we form another part. It's like it's all kind of all happening simultaneously in these different stages. So what is this Brysa telling us? So I think that there's a way to blend these opinions with current scientific. So with regards to the idea that the child forms at the navel, navel as the zygote develops, the yolk sac melds with other vessels and it forms the umbilical cord, right? And then from there, from that, it shoots out in both directions, as we say, and it forms the length of the embryo, right? So it kind of lengthens in both ways. So in a certain sense, that is very true. It, it does... It doesn't necessarily mean that the exact point of conception, then all of a sudden there's a navel and it starts out. We're talking about already later into, into the pregnancy, when it starts to, when it implants and then starts really developing, it, it goes from the navel area, from the umbilical cord area and shoots out lengthwise. And also when it says that the head, right, starts at the head, it doesn't necessarily have to mean the head that we're thinking of person's head, the head of an embryo is what develops into the brain and the heart and the lungs, right? So when it's an embryo, what's called, what we would look at it and say, that's the head of the embryo, that actually develops into the brain and heart and lungs, which are vital life organs. So where is the primary life formed there? That's from the head, right? The, the vital areas are coming from the head. of, And so both of these could really be blended, I think, with what we see in current scientific observation to be true for what they're trying to convey. And as we say in uh, in Talmudic parlance, we say, Elu elu Both of these opinions are the words of the living God. They both have something important to teach us. Now, finally, there is a Talmudic description, which is really fascinating. And this is from Sota, I believe. Is it from Sota? No, this is, so I apologize. This is also from Nida. So what was the, oh, the before, the, what I was saying before was from Sota. Sorry. Uh, this is going to the Talmud in Nida, and it has a description of the fetus in the womb, which is quite astounding. And I'll tell you why it's astounding in a moment. So Rabbi Simlai says the following discourse, he says, what does a child resemble when it is in the bowels of its mother? Folded writing tablets. Its hands rest on its two temples, its two elbows on its two legs, and its two heels against its buttocks. Its head lies between its knees, its mouth is closed, and its navel is open, and it eats what its mother eats and drinks what its mother drinks. Now, this is quite interesting. This is millennia before systematic human dissection was practiced, or certainly modern imaging technology like we have today. But the sages of the Talmud were able to be aware, they were well aware of how a baby looks in utero. And if you compare it to da Vinci's drawing, his famous drawing that da Vinci made, which is the earliest known accurate depiction of a fetus in the womb, that's not until the 16th century. Right? That's, that's a, a, a millennia and a half almost. And he actually had to dissect a pregnant woman, a, a pregnant cadaver, in order to get that image. How did Rabbi Simlai know over a thousand years beforehand? I have a hard time believing that that this and the other uh, descriptions of how the fetal development occurs are just sheer luck. 
I think Jews did it first. Now, something interesting I do want to mention is that there are there was I said that this was way before uh, systematic systematic dissection. It is true. I do want to say about a half a millennium, about five hundred years before Rabbi Simlai, there was systematic dissection in ancient Greece by two famous physicians, Herophilus of Chalcedon and Erasistratus of Chaos, or Chaos. I'm not sure how to pronounce the, the names there exactly. What do you want from me? They're ancient Greek names. Sorry, I'm not like a, a big uppity-up academic or anything. However, what's interesting, so they would actually, uh, they would do it for the state. They, they were actually allowed to, uh, for the advancement of science, to operate on people, to take cadavers and dissect them and learn all sorts of things. Because back then there was a very, um, it was very, I don't want to say heretical or sacrilegious in a certain sense. It was, it was seen as dirty and unnatural to, to be doing such a thing. So they were actually, but they, but they did have the, I forget who was the, um, the king at the time there, what was, you know, who allowed it for that. I forget exactly who it was. They were allowed to do this, but they were primarily allowed to do it for executed criminals. That's what they you did their experiments on. So if you were an executed executed criminal, you might have your body dissected by one of these two by both of these guys. And you know, I would venture to say, not too many pregnant ladies in that demographic. So even though there was for a very brief time some systematic dissection of cadavers in ancient Greece, it was very short lived, and it was primarily in this very narrow category of executed. Also, the as soon as they died, there was it was not taken up again. Uh, certainly in Western culture, uh, until around the 13th century CE. So this is just um, th- this was like a, a very br- there was this very brief moment in history, ancient history, where you did have this. But like I said, it was very narrowly practiced. It was only by these two guys. They usually only did just criminals that were executed. And as soon as they died, that was it. That was the end. And it didn't get taken up again for another, uh, you know, 1500 years or so. So that's that. I think it's quite uh, amazing when we see the, uh, just uh, aside from the sheer beauty and marvel of human development in utero, which is just so amazing. It's just miraculous. If you ever watch these videos on like the fast forward, you know, how they show the development, it, it's it's quite amazing. And Again, the fact that we're talking thousands of years before any of this was able to be viewed is just, in my opinion, shows the divine inspiration for the rabbis of the Talmud and Judaism as a whole. We now find ourselves in the last day of Hanukkah, and the last day of Hanukkah is called Zois Hanukkah, which means this is Hanukkah. And it primarily comes from the Torah reading, which starts out, This is the dedication of the temple altar. But it doesn't mean that just because it comes from the Torah reading, therefore we name it this, you know? It's not, Judaism isn't incidental like that. If there's a name for something, it has a a meaning, a deeper significance. So what is it about the eighth day of Hanukkah that we say, oh, this is Hanukkah, something about the eighth day in particular. So... 
To understand that, you first have to understand a quick little background of the different opinions. Of course, it's Judaism, so there's going to be different opinions. There's two different opinions on how to light the menorah. One is that we light, like we see, one candle the first night, two candles the second night, so on and so forth, until we reach tonight, the eighth night, which you have eight candles lit on the menorah, totally full. That's base Hillel. The other is base Shammai. There were two famous rivals, Hillel and Shammai, and their students are known as Base Hillel and Base Shammai, the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai. And Base Shammai said the opposite. He says, no, no, no. On the beginning of Hanukkah, you light eight candles, then you light seven, then six, and so on. And of course, as you see in the menorah, we follow the opinion of Base Hillel, where we light one, two, three, four. And why is it that we have these two opinions? So it's been explained at length especially in Hasidic philosophy, that basically base Shammai is looking at the potential of things. It views life and Torah and mitzvahs in the perspective, from the perspective of God, from the perspective of potential, right? God views us and he knows exactly who we are. He knows what our capabilities are, what our potential is. And therefore, when he looks down and says, oh, okay, Hanukkah, we're going to talk... Uh, a mitzvah of lighting the candle. What is Hanukkah all about? It's about having all the lights lit up. So therefore, right from the beginning, our potential is, boom, this is our potential. And the potential of Hanukkah is we have eight days left. We have a potential eight days of Hanukkah, so we light all eight lights. Now a day has passed. Now we have a potential of seven days of Hanukkah. So it's always going according to the potential. Base Hillel says, no, 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 no. It's not about God's perspective, especially on Hanukkah. It's about our perspective as human beings. Why especially on Hanukkah? Hanukkah, interestingly enough, is not a biblical holiday, but it is a man-made holiday. It's rabbinic. The rabbis instituted the holiday of Hanukkah, along with a handful of other holidays, but the, most of the Jewish calendar is biblically represented in the holiday realm. But when it comes to Hanukkah and Purim and maybe a, one or two other examples, the holidays, those holidays are man-made. And so it's not about the giver. It's not about God's perspective. It's about our perspective. And in our perspective, we live in the actual physical world. We live in a world of the actual, not the potential. As anyone knows, you know, when, when you were told as a kid, oh, you have such potential. It just made you want to say, Blech, you know, I, who cares? You know, I have such potential. Ooh, big deal. You know, come on. How am I doing now? I might have such potential, but I, you know, I need, I need something real. I need something tangible because that's, who we are as human beings, and we need the real, the tangible, the here and now. And so Base Hillel says, no, it's not about the potential, it is about the actual. What are we actually doing? What are we actually accomplishing? And therefore, the first night, it is actually the first night of Hanukkah, one light. Second night, two lights, etc. Until you finally get to the eighth night. And the eighth night, you have all eight lights. You've actualized. Now you've come to, right, the self-actualization on the top of the pyramid, right? You've reached your potential. You've, you're actually expressing what it is that we were meant to express, the light of Hanukkah. It's, it's about shining forth in the darkness and bringing light to the world and shining so that the darkness itself lights up and shines. And that's why we call this last night of Hanukkah, Zois Hanukkah. This is Hanukkah, because this is the message that we're supposed to take out into the world, a full menorah of light, a full measure 
of light into the world and expressing godliness into the world so that the darkness of the world doesn't just get pushed away. No, no, no. The darkness itself lights up, and that's why we light it at night, because it's not enough just to have the light shining out there, but we want the darkness itself to shine. So I wish everyone a happy Hanukkah. You should spread your light, spread the light of Torah and mitzvahs and God into the world. Be good people. Be shining examples of what it means to be a Jew. And if you're not Jewish, then be a shining example of what it means to be a non-Jew, to be a good, decent, wonderful human being, spreading light and joy and happiness and godliness into the world. Happy Hanukkah and Shabbat Shalom.